This is Chapter 37 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we get a visit from best-selling thriller writer Nelson DeMille. Then we meet a millennial entrepreneur whose new book details how failure can make you a better boss. Nelson DeMille has been a literary mainstay for the last 40 years. For his 20th novel, titled The Cuban Affair, DeMille embarked on an extensive research trip to the Caribbean island. He told us all about it when he stopped by our studios and spoke with our Pat Farnack. Your timing is impeccable, as they say. Uh, How long was it since you've been to Cuba where I guess the idea first came to you? Yeah, it's been uh, actually two years this month. Uh, Mm -hmm. I went to Cuba with a uh, group. Group travel is easier. It was a Yale educational group. Uh, I'm not a Yale, my son was, but I joined the group. And uh, at that time, it was the beginning of the Cuban thaws when uh, the Obama administration was opening up Cuba and the word Cuban thaw was out there. So I kind of got interested in it. I was always interested in Cuba anyway. And so I went on the uh, the 13-day tour, I think it was. And uh, it was not only educational, it was really enlightening and kind of, uh, kind of stunning to see the poverty and what was going on. But it was an exciting time. So this book is set during that time of October 2015. You really do a great job of capturing the, the paranoia that must exist there. And now, as I said, your timing is impeccable with all these uh, American diplomats who yeah. have been assaulted with these sonic devices. I can see that happening. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm kind of paranoid anyway, so this is a good place to be. <laughs> I had been to the Soviet Union when I wrote uh, one of my books, uh, Drum School, and, uh, you know, and these are kind of paranoid places. And uh, when I was there, I was fortunate enough to be able to meet the um, acting American ambassador, Jeffrey, Jeffrey De Laurentiis, in that same embassy that was uh, under, now under sonic attack. There's a big plaza in front of it called the Forum of Peace or something, and Cubans always demonstrate, you know, these are not really spontaneous demonstrations against the United States. But you can see that, you know, it's like an open space, the building sits by itself, where it would be easy for someone, I don't know who, uh, to, you know, to send sonic waves into the building. It's just awful what happened to these people. But, you know, the thinking now is that it wasn't really the Cubans, because they are not looking to do this. It could be uh, the Russians. It's always the Russians, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, your protagonist is an interesting guy, uh, Mac McCormick. And uh, is he you? I mean, I, you probably get asked that a lot. but uh, <laughs> Mac McCormick is about half my age, you know. Uh, Still. <laughs> right. And uh, But a lot of my uh, characters in my other books, like the John Corey series, yeah. Uh, the, I had a new, I have a new publisher, and uh, the publisher very kindly suggested that a lot of my characters are ready for Social Security, <laughs> and it's about time I come up with a new guy, 35 years old, um, which seems to be the magic age for Hollywood and for the literature. And I was thinking I didn't even know a 35-year-old. I had to find a 35-year-old to talk to, who actually was my son. Uh, but yeah, he's 35 years old, and he's uh, Vietnam and non Vietnam vet. Most of my characters were Vietnam vets. I was a Vietnam vet. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, guy, this guy's an Afghan war vet, and um, he's been wounded in Afghanistan. And when the book opens, we see him in Key West, Florida, in the famous Green Parrot Bar, where he's waiting for a client, a Cuban American client, who wants to charter his fishing boat. Mac is now doing uh, charter fishing. And uh, they w- he wants him to go to Cuba for a fishing tournament, but 
and he offers him $2 million. So Mac understands right up front this has nothing to do with fishing. It has to do with something else. So that's the first chapter, the little hook. You know. That is, certainly yeah. was a hook. Um, and he has a smart-ass outlook, I guess you could say. I, he'd be sassy if he were a woman, but he's a smart-ass as a guy. And I like it first person as well. Yeah, it's a first-person narrative. And I started doing that with one of my earlier books, uh, The Gold Coast. First time I ever tried a first person, it's tricky. Yeah. Uh, publishers don't always like it. One old editor told me, he said, uh, suicide notes are written in the first person, be careful. But once you got the character down and the narrative drive, um, it, it, it could pull the reader in, because the reader cares about this character. But you gotta make him interesting, or her interesting. And uh, so yeah, he's a little bit sarcastic. He's got this kind of, uh, he's from New England, but he's got a kind of a dry sense of humor, but also he's got this uh, GI sense of humor because he spent five years in the military. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now, I, I love uh, your descriptions of Cuba. It's almost like you, you're actually there, which you were, of course. Um, and you say, um, I, your description was perfect, mildewed magnificence. Talk about what Cuba is like. You know, it was a uh, it was a prosperous country, probably the most prosperous country in the Caribbean before the revolution, but also probably the most corrupt with Batista. Um, it's an old colonial society. I mean, it goes, some of the buildings actually go back to the 1600s. And uh, the old city is beautiful. It's as beautiful as anything you'll see in Europe. But there's been no maintenance. There's been 60 years or 50 years of deferred maintenance. These buildings are literally collapsing. They literally collapse. You can, uh, they say if you sit, stand in the old city uh, at night, you will start to hear collapse here and there. Some of the buildings had facades that had collapsed, and people are still actually living in the uh, habitable parts of the building. It looked like, it looked like, I was, uh, I said I was in Vietnam, I was in uh, Way after the Battle of Way in 1968, and it kind of reminded me of a war zone without a shot having been fired. It's just falling apart. Um, the, the poverty is grinding. I mean, these people make $20 a month, that's the official salary, and they have ration books, and even then you can't buy food even with a ration book if it's not available. Uh, I think that's what stunned me because you know, all of us have been, you know, to Florida and the Caribbean, and we see the prosperity. And then you go to this other Caribbean island, which is politically different, and you see that um, that that system does not work. And these people are very entrepreneurial, and we know this from obviously they come to South Florida and they own half of Miami. They they're very clever and they're very educated, and even the ones in Cuba are very educated. The education system, I have to say, is good, uh, but they can't. Um, they can't show their talents because it's a system that doesn't reward talent or entrepreneurial activity. So I think that's what kind of stunned me more than mm. more than anything to see this. And this is the kind of thing you expect to see someplace else in the world, yeah. maybe Africa or someplace in the Asia. But to see it right in the Caribbean it was kind of jarring. And I think I, hopefully I captured that in the book. Oh, you certainly did. And you mentioned that, of course, Cuba is known for these beautiful. Uh, 50s vintage cars mm -hmm. that are in better shape than the buildings are, as yeah. you mentioned. Yeah, I thought, you know, when I we, before I got there, that these were just things you see in a travel right. back, that there was probably 10 of them in the whole city. Uh, but no, there were actually hundreds of them, and I, I was just totally stunned to see that many vintage cars. I mean, there's a fortune there for somebody if they want to go there and buy these things, and they're in beautiful shape. And these are the people who are entrepreneurial. They are allowed to own their own car and they're allowed to use them for tourism and as, as taxi cabs. Um, many of the parts have been replaced. Um, uh, one of them, uh, 
and I wrote about it in the in the book has a boat engine uh, to keep it running, a, a Perkins boat engine. Uh, but the, I, you know, again, you 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 think you know a place because you read so much about it. He was been in the news a lot, and it was then and it is now. But when you get there and you actually see the reality, it's uh, it's, it's it's in one way it's kind of. Uh, I guess the word is it's jarring because you have a sense of unreality. Like I'm really here in this travel brochure and I'm really riding in a 57 Pontiac convertible uh, with a very nice Cuban driver who's showing me Havana. Uh, so it, it was fun. I, would I recommend this to anybody? Uh, yeah, I'd recommend that everybody go at least once. Yeah. It's a great cocktail party chatter when you come back and bring your cigars and your rum with you. Uh, would I go back again? Um, I, I would like to, but I think after this book is out, uh, I don't think I would be welcome back. <laughs> I don't think you better right. chance it. Right. Yeah, and I know people who have, uh, I know Cuban Americans, friends of mine, who've been barred from going because they've written, uh, a friend of mine, uh, name is Eduardo, he's a college professor, he's written anti-Castro and anti-regime stuff, and then he applied for a visa. So he wanted to go home. He hadn't seen his homeland in 30, 40 years. And they uh, denied the visa, which I guess is better than saying, okay, come, and then and being then arrested, right? Prison. Exactly. I have to ask you about the uh, bones that uh, Mac and his uh, sidekick uh, try to smuggle out in the book. Is that based mm -hmm. in fact? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't want to give away too much of All it, right. but, uh, you know, part of the plot is uh, American POWs from the Vietnam era. Um, we know that the Cubans. Uh, you know, under, the, the, under the Castro regime, participated in the torture of American POWs in Hanoi. Um, there was a th there was a rumor, maybe based more on, a, more on some fact, that 17 of these American POWs were taken from uh, North Vietnam, from Hanoi, uh, to Cuba uh, for experiments with psychological torture and also uh, uh, drug-induced torture, that type of thing. And that, that's, that's a persistent rumor which is going to come up again as we try to sure. normalize relations. So although uh, there's, no, there's no hard evidence of this, the, the rumor is so persistent there's got to be something to it because we know that the Cubans were involved with American interrogation in Vietnam. Mm. So, oh, so. Very interesting. So what is next for you? Well, next I'm thinking of sending something a little more close to home. A lot of my books are uh, set on Long Island yes. where I live and like the Gold Coast and uh, I've done enough adventure travel, <laughs> you know, I've been to every place from, uh, uh, from uh, well, Vietnam, I went back to Vietnam, uh, and the Soviet Union, and all these, a lot of unpleasant places. I want to, either my next book should be set in either Bermuda or someplace where I can do the research. So I'm doing a, a kind of a, um, uh, more of a, uh, I would say, a, a kind of a murder mystery set on Long Island amongst the rich and famous Oh. Yeah, the North Shore of Long Island, the Gold Coast, and uh, it's going to be fun. All right. Well, come back and talk to us about right. that. Thanks, Pat. Right. I certainly Thank will. You. Thank you. We've been talking with Nelson DeMille about his newest book, The Cuban Affair. Kristen Hadid has done more in her 29 years than most people. While still in college, she founded the wildly successful company Student Made, a cleaning service that employs college students with GPAs over 3.5. But in her new book, Permission to Screw Up, How I Learned to Lead by Doing Almost Everything Wrong, Hadid admits she didn't always have it all figured out. She spoke about it with our Ray Hoffman. In your book, you say you chose the most difficult business model in the entire world. 
Tell me about that. I did. Well, I think the cleaning industry is a really tough industry. You have work that isn't glamorous, and people, you know, it's hard to make someone feel valued when they're cleaning a toilet. And then you add on top of that that we only hire students, and for many it's their first job they've ever had, and some haven't even made their bed before. So we have to teach these students who don't you know, have job experience how to clean and keep them feeling valued while they're doing it. It's tough. Low margins, high turnover in employees, high turnover in customers. Yep. Why didn't you go to Wall Street like you planned? <laughs> yeah, I, I was lost in college, I think, as most students are. And at first, it was just about what job makes the most money. And that's why investment banking was something I wanted to do. And then I started cleaning houses. Not, you know, My intention was never to start a company. But in doing this work, I realized there was something that I loved about this business. And I couldn't explain it, but I chose to stick with it instead of moving to New York and working on Wall Street. Now, you haven't gotten out of your 20s, right? I'm 29. 29. Okay. By my count... You have been an entrepreneur of one kind or another for about 23 of those 29 <laughs> years. You not only sold fake nails made out of Elmer's glue in the first grade, but it led to your first lesson in head-to-head -head competition, and I need to hear that story from you. Well, as a kid, I was very entrepreneurial um, and always had these little businesses. And in first grade, I found that if you just put little drops of Elmer's glue in your desk and you let them dry overnight, you could put them on your nail. So... I started selling fake nails, and I would make a batch of nails the night, the day before, and come to school in the morning, and there'd be a line of, you know, little first graders waiting for their nails. And one day, the teacher switched all the seats, so someone else got my desk, and it had all the fake nails in it. And so she started selling the fake nails. I love that. But, you know, Sorry. <laughs> How much yeah. were you charging? I, you know, I don't. Need, I think I was trading erasers and pencils for. I don't think I was actually charging money, but yeah, first grade. Oh, and then you got into a competition with her, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, so then we both sold fake nails. And now she's one of my dear friends. But <laughs> Well, who won the competition? I don't I think we tied. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> now, unlike any other entrepreneur I have known who was active as a child, and I've met a whole lot of them through the years, you actually have a paper trail showing your strategies, like the paper showing the lemonade stand strategy with your variable pricing policy. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, it's funny because my parents, they're not entrepreneurs. So I don't know how I, I, you know, became so fascinated in business. But third grade, I had a lemonade stand, and I decided that if I let the customer choose the price, maybe I would make more money. So that was my pricing model. It was you pick the price. <laughs> and as you demonstrated on a TED Talk, you get more, by the way, mm -hmm. if, if you uh, You do. Say, oh, <laughs> you pay you what do. you'd like, yeah. yeah. As you demonstrated on a TED Talk, which is a really nice one, you were 10 when you wrote down a fairly lengthy list of money-making ideas mm -hmm. under the headline, How to Retire Before You're 20, yeah. subtitled, Ways to Make Money. Mm -hmm. And I have here on my phone a copy of the list, oh. Ways to Make Money, and I need you to read those. See if I can read my handwriting. Okay, ways to make money. Mm -hmm. Lemonade sale, yard sale, bake sale, babysitting, car wash, house cleaning, card business, walk dogs, take care of pets, wash pets, refreshment stand, buy stocks. Buy stocks. You finally got the right one at <laughs> yeah, the bottom. <laughs> How come you didn't go to Wall I, Street? Yeah, buy stocks. You, had, you at least had the right idea. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, as you can see, that was 10, so always just fascinated with business. I don't think it was about making money, though. It was just I loved creating a business yeah. and seeing people come and be a part of that. Did that separate you at all from your little friends? 
No, I recruited them to be in my businesses. <laughs> so they would come over on the weekends and we would, you know, just, we would do a business for the weekend. And I think even in college, when I started my company, I recruited some of my friends to work with me. And I think it's just, I love bringing people together. And I think, I think that's what it is about business that I love. And I don't know if I would have been able to do that on Wall Street. Yeah, probably not the way you envision it. Mm -hmm. Now, at the University of Florida, you started down this entrepreneurial road because you wanted a pair of $99 jeans. Now, this is a story I know you've told probably 14,000 times, <laughs> but I'd like you to tie it in with what I saw in the first acknowledgement at the back of the book. I wrote this out. To my parents for being the kind who would never in any universe buy me $99 jeans. Now, with that framework, mm -hmm. tell me the story. I was 19 at the University of Florida in college, fell in love with this pair of jeans, had no money, but knew that my parents would never give me the money, that they weren't those kinds of parents. And so... And take me a little deeper into sure. that. Yeah. Why wouldn't they? They, I mean, they always, their philosophy was if you want something, you have to work to get it. And they, they really taught my sister and I to have a work ethic and that if there was something we wanted, it was our responsibility to figure that out. So my initial thought when I saw these jeans is, what can I do on my own to make 99 bucks? And that's kind of, that's how Student Made started. I put an ad on Craigslist to clean someone's house. I charged exactly $99 plus tax. And then it, it led to this. You hired a couple of friends, started attracting clients, and then you hit the mother load, a student apartment complex during the move-out season at the end of summer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, a period of time where all of the students move out of their apartments and they have to be cleaned before the new tenants move in. And I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I mean, I, I signed a contract hardly having any employees, and we had thousands of apartments to clean in only a short amount of time, and it was a disaster. And that, that was actually the summer that I had my first defining moment as a leader. Forty-five of my employees quit at the same exact time. And, and that's the first screw <laughs> That's up. the first big screw up. And I think, for me, that was the turning point, and that's what made me want to stick with this business because I was obsessed with, with trying to figure out how do I get people to, to want to work with me and to want to do this job. And that's kind of when everything changed and I decided Wall Street wasn't for me and I was so excited by this challenge that was in front of me. Well, take me, Kristen, take me back a little bit to the circumstances under which the 45 of 60 employees left. Mm -hmm. What did you observe? Where were you in the, in the setting of all this happening? Mm -hmm. Well, everything I'd ever seen on TV and in the movies about being the boss is the boss is in the office while the employees are, are doing the work, you know? And I, I was, I mean, I had, didn't have any leadership experience. So my employees are cleaning these filthy apartments, and I was sitting in the air-conditioned clubhouse. And I wasn't doing it to distance myself from them on purpose. I just thought, this is what I'm supposed to do. And I said, if you need me, I'm here. <laughs> and it didn't take too long for them to decide this just wasn't for them. I mean, the work was awful, and then they had a boss who didn't appear to care about them. So after a couple of days, 45 walked in at the same exact moment, and they said, we don't want to do this anymore. And they just walked out. And I was, I mean, I think I was, it was 19 or 20. You know, it was, it was, I was shell shot. I couldn't even believe, I couldn't comprehend what had just happened. Okay, so now you get your first lesson in how to undo a screw-up. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me you did it through frankness and honesty. I did, and I didn't, at first I was angry with them. You know, I remember thinking, how could they do this? How, they signed up to do this job, they committed to this. And then I realized I still had so many apartments to clean. So I had to get them back, and, I, and I'm, on it, that was the reason I, I called a meeting at my house and I said, you get an early paycheck and pizza if you show up. They all showed up. 
And then I just, I was honest. I said, I don't know what I'm doing. This is, you know, I'm way in over my head. And they're, they're like, we know, it's obvious. But they gave me another chance. And I, it was because I was honest. And they saw me as a human and they wanted to help me. And that, for me, that's when everything changed too. I, I felt supported and I really wanted to be a leader that made them feel good and that they wanted to follow. Yeah, and even though you learned from that and the company grew, you must now look back in amazement about all the things you didn't know about not only being a CEO, but just about having a business. Yeah, I mean, there's no guide that tells you exactly what to do. And I would read a lot. I would spend every Friday night at the bookstore reading and learning through other people's experiences. But there's nothing like just doing it. And you learn by trying, and sometimes it doesn't work, and you have to get back up again and try again. And that's been my whole, you know, the last 10 years, that's what it's been, trying and figuring it out as I go. And I think that's why I wrote this book, because I want people to know that that's normal, that you never really figure leadership out, you never really figure business out. There's always a new challenge ahead. Yeah, well, things did get better when the uh, training of new recruits became less about teaching how to clean a toilet mm -hmm. and more about how to solve problems, which sort of paralleled your own experience, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yes, I noticed in my company for many, like I said, it was their first job. And so they would ask me just all these questions that I knew they, they knew the answers to. And it was like they needed reassurance. And so I, my challenge is how do I help my people become confident in themselves and learn to trust their own thinking? And so I thought a lot about my dad and my mom and how they raised me. And it was very much, you have to figure it out. We're not, we're not going to solve the problem for you. And so I think in leadership, you feel like you have to be there to help your people and support them. And by telling them, sorry, I can't help you. You have to figure this out on your own. That kind of seems the opposite of caring about somebody. But what I realize is when you really push the problem back to the person and say, I trust you. I know you can figure this out. It helps them become confident in themselves. You're, the message you're sending is, I trust you. And that's channeling your father, it's the county attorney in Flagler County, Florida. Definitely channeling my father, which I never thought I would say, but yes. <laughs> And uh, to help motivate your employees, you took on the role of head cheerleader. Mm -hmm. You found that the cheer part is easier than the leader part, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I, I was always great at um, telling people how much they meant to me. And, and I think the 45 walking out had a lot to do with that. It really changed my perspective on how to relate to people and how to make them feel loved and, and cared for at work. Um, but when it came to telling someone, hey, I need you to be better or, you know, we, need, we have some improvement to make, forget about it. I mean, I, I was afraid they would leave because I just had 45 people walk out on me. So I really had to learn how to give feedback in a way that um, still made someone feel cared for. And what I've learned is that when you give real feedback, you build trust because that person knows that you're willing to say whatever it is you need to say to make them better, and they know that you're not hiding anything and that you're, you're willing to have those difficult conversations. Which ties into when you were working at uh, or attending a local small business incubator, mm -hmm. and there was an older woman who convinced you, mm -hmm. against your will, to do evaluations. And now with a largely, almost totally millennial workforce, mm -hmm. that takes us smack into the perception that millennials as a group don't like and in many cases have never heard, criticism. Yes, and these aren't my words, but millennials have been nicknamed the participation generation. You know, you get a trophy for just showing up. So for some, it may be the first time that they're hearing critical feedback. But I think, I think confrontation and feedback is uncomfortable for anyone. I don't think it matters what generation you're a part of. Um, and I, I would say, hey, I, I need you to improve your dusting tech, you know, and then I would have somebody crying or I would have them email me something saying they were really upset. And so I really had to figure out what's the best way to give this feedback. And 
I think the secret is telling them at the beginning that, hey, I care about your growth and your success. It's easier for me to not talk to you about this, but I, I care about you, so I want to have this conversation, and this is what I need, you know. And I think have it, starting it that way makes them feel cared for in the process. All of these things got you bumping along in the right direction, mm -hmm. and then you met one of my favorite people in the corporate world, mm -hmm. Bob Chapman. Oh, yes. CEO of St. Louis-based Barry Waymiller, and I want you to fill in the, the sentence here. Bob Chapman, CEO of St. Louis-based manufacturer Barry Waymiller, is the... Best leader in the entire world. I he's my role model. I mean, he, you can just tell just being around him, he t understands people, he understands what they need, he puts his people first. He is the definition of a servant leader. Yeah, he's fabulous. I love the he's guy, amazing. too. amazing. And one other big outside influence, and again, this is a guy who has influenced a whole lot of entrepreneurs, particularly of your generation, Tony Shea at mm -hmm. Zappos. Yes. Yes, I, I read Tony Shea's book. Uh, I think I was still in college. And in that book, Delivering Happiness, inspired me to create core values at Student Made and really, really changed my view on what culture is. Because I used to think culture is a ping pong table or having music in the office. And now I realize it's the values, it's the way that people feel at work, it's something you, it's the DNA of a company that's unique to the company, and he really helped me realize that. Yeah, I marked the 10 core values here. Yes. Oh, on the other side. Yeah. See, when you do this with yes. the, yes. you got to go to the right side of it. Take your moral fiber. It's about honesty and integrity. Roll with the punches. Flexibility. Jump through flaming hoops. Going above and beyond for one another. And I will say that's more internal because I believe that if you go above and beyond for one another, it will naturally happen that for the customer. Don't leave us hanging. Just teamwork. Be classy, not sassy. Our slogan is cleaning with class, so representing the brand at all, you know, at all times. Own it. Ownership mentality. Unleash the creative dragon within. That's with problem solving and being creative. Pay it forward. Giving back. And how do you do that? We clean free for cancer patients. And we also try to get involved in as many community events as we can and give our students the opportunity to volunteer. Speak now or forever hold your peace. It's about feedback and communication. And how much easier is the feedback and communication now compared to nine years ago? It's so much easier now because I realize that that's actually... It's actually helping someone grow. When you don't give feedback, you're preventing them from growing because you're, you're, you know that there's a way they could be better and you're, and you're keeping that from them. And number 10 is, I just forgot number 10. What is it? Number 10 is raise the roof. And that's about realizing that you're a part of something bigger and contributing to our growth for the future. And all of this led to better hires and a better workforce, right? Well, I put the values on the wall and thought they would just magically do what they had done for Zappos and Tony Shea, and I realized they don't. You, you really have to make them a living, breathing part of the company, and that means talking about them often, making decisions around them and, and showing others in the company the decisions you made so that they can emulate that. Um, really thinking about the interview questions you're asking and do they reveal whether someone is a fit and whether they fit those values. So it took a long time to figure out how to bring those to life, but if you really follow them, yes, I believe they can transform a company. And I should go back to Barry Waymiller, the course that, that uh, Bob Chapman has authored, the FBI, yes. which is very important. Yes, so, that, so the FBI is a, a sentence and it's how you give feedback. 
So the F stands for feeling, the B stands for behavior, and the I stands for impact. And Bob and his team wanted to teach everyone in his company how to give feedback in a productive way. And so the FBI is how they do that. So an example of an FBI would be, let's say someone's late to a meeting. You would say, um, hi, John. You know, I felt disappointed this morning when you were 30 minutes late to the meeting. And now the impact is I'm unsure if I can rely on you. And then you say, can you help me? And the idea is that the person doesn't want to make you feel disappointed and they don't want the outcome to be that you can't rely on them. So they're inspired to change their behavior. So you did have this better workforce, but you still had this thing hanging over the company which you really couldn't handle properly. And it was your, your core season. It was like a retailer facing December, mm -hmm. but you weren't Macy's. And so when you got to that student move-out season every year, it got bad again, and you had to lower your standards. And finally, you came up with a solution. Mm -hmm. You didn't accept the money. <laughs> yes. Well, you said it earlier, the cleaning industry, the margins are very low, 15% profit margin. So you really make money by doing volume. And that's why in the summer when all the students move out, we would always take a lot of those apartment complexes. It was so much work. We'd have to hire hundreds of people. We lowered our standards. I mean, we pretty much, if you had a pulse and you were a student, you were hired. And we dreaded, while we made money, we dreaded the summer because it was like a different company. And um, one day after doing this for, you know, nine years, I just, I looked at the values on the wall and I thought, why are we doing this to ourselves? I mean, yes, we're making money, but is it really worth the money? to have our company just go completely haywire for the whole summer and walk around and realize, you know, I wouldn't want this person wearing this, this student-made shirt, but they're wearing it. And we decided we're not going to do that anymore. So we totally, we still do move out season, but we don't hire as many people and we only work with the properties that really um, treat our employees well and we only hire people who fit our values. We don't make as much money, but it's still worth it. Okay, so the culture yeah. then is maintained. It's maintained. And that ties into maybe the best line that I saw in the entire book, Values are the only deal breaker. They are. And so that, what that means is in the past, we, we have a GPA requirement, 3.5 GPA. But then I realized, you know what, what does a GPA say about someone's heart and who they are? You know, if someone has a 3.0 GPA, does that mean they really can't work here? So we believe the values are the only deal breaker. As long as somebody lives those values, embodies those values, even if their GPA isn't there, even if they aren't a student, we, we want to offer them a job because they fit our culture. And that to us is the most important thing. But if they are, their resume is great, they have a 4.0 GPA, but they don't fit the culture, they don't fit the values, then they can't be a part of what we're doing. Confession. Yes. I had a 2.5 GPA <laughs> at Penn State. I had a 3.51, which is why the requirement <laughs> was a 3.5. <laughs> ah, okay. Now, you've learned a lot about leadership and you learned about taking your business model to a second market, mm -hmm. five hours away, a drive five hours away in Pensacola, and after a couple of years, packing it up again. Give me the lesson in that experience. Mm, that was a hard one. You know, we always had a dream to open in every college town, and Pensacola was the first real opportunity that we had that seemed like it, it would really work. And we sent two people who were great examples of our culture and actually were from the area, but they just they weren't natural salespeople. They didn't love sales. One of them had a degree in journalism. Journalism and anthropology. And, you know, yeah. I didn't, I started without a background in sales. or So I, I said, I know you can do it. And they wanted to try. But it was very obvious that they didn't love sales. They were, they were, feel, they were struggling. But I was too busy at the time to really give them what they needed. So I would listen to them every week on our calls, reporting their numbers. And they weren't getting better. They were just maintaining and it took the team actually confronting me and saying, we need to 
close Pensacola. I mean, this is not, it's not working. And all of our resources are going here instead of elsewhere. And it was really hard. And I, and I, I failed there, you know, because I should have given them the, the, the tools, the skills that they needed to do that job. And I didn't have the time and I let it just, I let it keep happening and it ended up hurting our company. But um, I, I will say the silver lining out of that is we did find someone to buy the location who gave all of our students a job. Yeah. We're, we're coaching him and, and mentoring him. Um, you sold low to make sure we that did. everybody We sold low in. because we, it was so important to us that our students still had a job with a company that felt like student-made. Yeah. And it's made us a, better at confronting difficult things. You know, we can't, we can't, if the elephant's in the room, we have to address it. We can't just let it continue to stay there. So will you try it again someplace else? I don't know. You know, I think for us now, it's what's next is always the question I get. And we're realizing we're more of an education company. All of our students, while they clean, they're learning how to build relationships and how to problem solve. And other companies are asking us, can you teach us how to do that in our, in our culture, in our company? So we're actually taking our curriculum and we're customizing it for other organizations. And that to us is so exciting and something that makes us want to get out of bed in the morning. So I don't know. I mean, maybe one day, but right now we're focusing on that. It's you realize Bob Chapman may be thinking when he yes. sees this, I may have a competitor for oh, Barry no. Miller University. We, we work together a lot. No, no, no. <laughs> oh. So at the end of the book, you say you wish you'd talked about this stuff, all the screw-ups mm -hmm. sooner instead of what you called the filtered stories of what I had done right. You did a lot of interviews, mm -hmm. Inc. and um, uh, Forbes, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And you kind of glossed over all the, all the mm -hmm. problems that go with starting a company from scratch when you really don't have any business background, even if, you're, even if you've got the entrepreneurial gene. Mm -hmm. What took you so long? Well, I think at the beginning, you know, I, I have no problem sharing the stories from the beginning, like 45 people quitting, because it happened nine years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think as a leader, you're programmed to sell this, this vision of success and to make people feel safe. And... There's an expectation when you're a CEO, and I don't know if it's if, it, if I put it on myself or if society kind of puts it on people, but that you just you have to have it together. You have to be perfect. And for example, Pensacola, I was in the process of closing that location when I was writing, and I thought I'm not going to put that in the book. This this is a this is happening now. You know, I'll talk about that years down the road. And then I thought, but why? Because there's somebody else going through something like this, and they're not talking about it. So I think the the purpose of the book is to show that. I screwed up in the beginning, I'm still screwing up, but I'm learning and growing from it, and we have to talk about that, because if you don't talk about it, you feel alone. You're pretty frank about this. At the back of the book, quote, if I could go back to the times when I told those filtered stories of everything I did right, I'd talk about the things I speak about now. I'd talk about how I told people what to do instead of empowering them. I'd talk about how my poor decisions as a leader led to my shutting down a whole branch of my company. I'd confess that I'd learned the value of autonomy by being too controlling. I'd talk about the, the people I didn't ask to leave when I should have and all the people I missed out on because I never hired them when I had the chance. Now, how is this confessional going to define you from this point on? Well, for a starter, I can't take these words back, so a lot of people are going to know about my screw-ups, and I'm okay with that. You know, I, I want, I, that was obviously the goal, but I, I really want people to create an environment around them where they talk about their, their failures openly, they're not afraid to ask for help and admit, hey, I don't have the answers, I'm struggling, um, because I think most importantly when we look at the next generation, we want to make leadership attainable. We want, we want them to say, hey, I can be a leader. And when we don't talk about what it took to get here, when we don't talk about all the things we did wrong, 
you maybe think I'm not cut out for that because I'm not I'm not perfect, you know, and, and that's not how leadership is. So I think we have to talk more openly about our failures and, and make it attainable for, for the next generation to step up. Well continued success, Kristen, thank and you. continued honesty. Thank you. I appreciate the interview. Yes, thanks so much. That's Author Talks for now. You can follow my daily feature, CEO Radio, on air on WCBS 880 or at cbsnewyork.com slash CEO Radio. Ray Hoffman, until next time. That's this week's podcast. Check out the videos of this week's interviews on our YouTube page, youtube.com slash WCBS 880. And if you're looking for more and who doesn't want more, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. And just a programming note, we're taking the next couple of weeks off, but don't worry, we'll be back with more great author interviews in November.